G'day friends and welcome to Happy Days. This is your pal Jesse Drackman on the mic, thanking each and every single one of you for taking the time to listen to my little podcast, proudly brought to you by my very own Freak Productions. If you want to support great creative literature, podcasts and music, check out my website at www.freekproductions.com where it's just too weird to be a freak as the word freak stands for. Now, you can go there and check out some of my novels, my comic book series, Freakenstein, as well as my new upcoming comic book, Furious. Uh, Also, my podcasts, which I do three of them, the podcast you are currently listening to, as well as my weekly Friday horror podcast, Freaky Friday, and Rad on Saturdays, which is a pop culture podcast, both of which I do with my pal, Jake Reddy. Now, uh, I love the support. I love the fact that people are listening to this and enjoying it, and uh, any feedback is greatly appreciated. Uh, And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the channel on whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on. It it goes a long way. It really helps. Um, And again, as I say every week, I don't do this for financial gain. I don't do this for popularity, likes, and all that sort of bullshit. Honestly, I just do this out of passion, and uh, I want more and more people to listen to this show, not only just to listen to my voice and the people that I talk to, but also to be inspired by some incredibly positive stories. And uh, there are so many, and I talk to people from all walks of life. And this week's episode is no exception. It is a brilliant episode and a brilliant discussion with uh, a man that I admire greatly. Um, Paul Miles is a photographer, uh, a rock music fan, a singer, but just a great human being. And he's recently uh, published a book uh, co-written with one of my favorite singers of all time, John Karabi. You may know John Karabi has the former lead singer of Motley Crue, amongst many other projects, The Scream, Union, etc., The Dead Daisies, the list goes on. But John Karabi is a phenomenal and fascinating human being. And Paul Miles is a passionate fan who understands this deeply and went one step further than any fan could imagine uh, and reached out to John Karabi and put together this incredible book called Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. It's out now, available on Amazon, as well as Paul's uh, very own website, paulmiles.com. I'll put the link in the description box. And uh, yeah, it's an incredible story about perseverance, as you're about to find out in this episode. Um, Paul discusses in incredible detail the approach to writing this book from a first-person perspective, but also uh, capturing some stories that are told straight from the horse's mouth, where a lot of autobiographies tend to um, not capture though that sincere um, truth from direct from the, the writer's perspective. So it's wonderful to know that there is a book out there where, that eloquently captures all this detail. As well as all this, we discuss, uh, you, you know, Paul's um, journey has a passionate crew fan creating his own Motley Crew website devoted to all things crew, uh, to getting the opportunities to following his favourite band on tour um, and a photography journey that has taken him all over the world. 
New York City, LA, Tokyo, and the list goes on. Uh, it's a powerful chat, and there's some really cool inspirational um, advice that you'll discover throughout about photography, about getting into writing books, and uh, yeah, it's it's a really awesome chat. I'm really glad that Paul took the time to do this. I'm deeply deeply appreciative. And uh, I feel like there's definitely a, a follow-up chat on the horizon for this. So uh, without further ado, I'll leave it here and let you enjoy my chat with Paul Miles as he shares his happy days. How are you? Excellent. Feeling really good today. Thanks. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's the best way to feel. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your busy day and uh, sharing your happy days with me, mate. This is uh, greatly appreciated and this has um, been one I've been looking forward to for quite some time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So a um, couple of things to talk about on this episode. Uh, you, you know, you, you obviously just released a phenomenal book with um, John Karabi um, that I'm really eager to read. I actually ordered this book uh, as soon as it was announced, so uh, I can't wait to copy and um, talk about this again for sure. Oh, I'm bummed that it hasn't arrived already for you. Oh, don't be, don't be. It's all good. It's If anything, it's just fantastic um, to get the email updates and listen to some snippets and, um, yeah, and just read the positive reviews. Yeah, look, everybody um, that's read it so far has had really great things to say about it. Um, I actually haven't seen one comment online from anybody that, that's read it and said, oh, it wasn't bad, you know, it wasn't, mm. it was okay, you know, like everybody's just been really, really positive saying that was awesome, it was amazing, I couldn't put it down, you know, I stayed up and uh, read it in in one night and, you know, things like that. And so it's just... It's just so uh, rewarding um, to get that kind of feedback uh, because we spent, you know, the best part of three years working on this project and pulling it together. So to finally get to the point now uh, where other people can actually enjoy all of those words that, you know, I typed <laughs> um, <laughs> is, uh, is always an awesome feeling. Yeah, and it must be uh, gratifying for you as well, you know, given that, uh, you know, being a diehard crew fan but also, you know, as a, professional photographer and now as you know friends with John Karabi as well um, it must be the most humbling feeling for you as a writer yeah it certainly is I mean you know my involvement with Motley Crue started because they were my favorite band right yeah. so it's, it's one of those um, you know like that movie Rockstar mm. um, you know it's like I, I started a website dedicated to my favourite band, just as kind of the internet was at its dawn of commercialisation back in the mid-90s. And at that time, Karabi was the uh, the singer in Motley Crue, you know, and, and rhythm guitar player, um, while Vince Neil was out of the band. Um, but then um, the day that I launched my website, Chronological Crew, which detailed the, the full history of the band, um, that was actually the day that Vince Neil publicly returned to the band in the American Music Awards in uh, on the 27th of January, 97. Wow. Um, and Karabi was out of the band at that point. But 
you know, I've always really admired his talent and thought his voice is just brilliant. Obviously, it's, you know, chalk and cheese compared to mm. Vince's voice. You know, they're, they're just poles apart in terms of their style. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I love them both, you know. Um, so I always, you know, um, followed the career of Karabi and updated fans in terms of his movements and what he was doing through his his subsequent projects, you know, through Union and Rat and, uh, and all his solo stuff as well. It felt like he deserved to have more of the spotlight shone on him um, because, you know, that album and that period with Motley's history is kind of, you know, was uh, somewhat ignored. And over time, I think fans have really come to appreciate the quality of musicianship on that album and, and what, you know, he brought to the band and brought out of the other guys in the band as well. And um, and I think now there's a lot more fans that look back on that period that he was fronting Motley Crue as being uh, quite an amazing period in the band's history. So, you know, I wanted to shine more spotlight on him and his career and what his story was because it's largely unknown mm. um, in terms of, you know, his upbringing and, um, and some of the bands that he was in, you know, prior to the scream. Um, which was the band he was in when he got the tap on the shoulder to come and try out for Motley. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of really explore all of that and get the true, full, comprehensive story, and I think I managed to do that uh, very well. Yeah, I, it's very exciting because, uh, you know, I, John Karabi is, you know, one of the most underrated vocalists, uh, in my opinion, as well as yours and many others uh, around the world, and it's such a fascinating story that, that he tells and I'm sure is told in this book. And uh, like you say, you know, between him and Vince, it's, yeah, it's chalk and cheese. They're absolute miles yeah. apart in terms of the vocal performance. But uh, yeah, his, yeah, his chapter is quite a fascinating chapter and uh, it's brilliant. And we are, you know, on behalf of all fans worldwide, we are eternally grateful to yourself for making this happen. Oh, look, thank you. But um, I'm just a fan as much as uh, anyone else as well. And, um, you know, he's uh, he's definitely one of my favourite vocalists and um, oh, yeah. he's definitely one of my favourite humans as well. You know, I've, I've had the opportunity um, of meeting a lot of uh, rock stars and musicians and artists and stuff like that, you know, not only through, mm. you know, tours I've done, you know, here and in Japan with Motley and their support bands and stuff like that, but... When I was living in New York City for a few years, um, I actually went backstage and um, I, I created a, a photography book called Before I Hit the Stage. And the idea was, you know, going backstage uh, before the band plays their show in New York City and just capturing fly on the wall style of what they do to prepare before they hit the stage, which is the title of the book. Um, so, you know, in that year of 2013, I think I shot about, you know, 63 or 70 different artists i think 63 made it into the book but it was probably around 70 75 different artists so you know i've got to spend a bit of time hanging out backstage with artists and i've got to say that karabi is absolutely hands down easily one of the most humble and just genuine you know musicians you could meet um, absolutely a real salt of the earth guy yeah i i had the privilege of seeing him uh perform the the crew self-titled album in its entirety um when he came out a couple of uh, mm-hmm. a few years back, I believe it was, and yeah, uh, yeah that was 
you know, that, that was such a surreal moment to, to witness all that. But one thing I walked away from seeing that was just his humble spirit on stage and his love for the fans and appreciation for being up there doing and being able to do what he does. Um, yeah. And then, you know, lo and behold, to, to have an opportunistic moment uh, to meet John Karabi for a brief moment and just to be able to say thank you to him. Uh, just his humble attitude afterwards to say to me, you know, and shake my hand and say, this is why I do what I do, you know. Mm, yeah. Um, unbelievable words from an unbelievable human being. That's all I've got to say. Yeah. And look, you know, you'll you'll read in the book that, you know, he, he's a pretty big rock and roll fan as well. And, you know, as much as, you know, Motley Crue's my favourite band, along with mm. uh, Kiss was always, you know, my favourite growing up and that as well. Um, you know, his favourites were Aerosmith and uh, Led Zeppelin. And, you know, there's some fantastic stories about, you know, not only discovering those bands and listening to those bands growing up in Philadelphia, um, but also getting the opportunity to, to meet uh, the members of those bands and what his experiences were like meeting his idols. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's really interesting as a fan of his to kind of, you know, read what it's like for him to, to meet his idols as well. And I think that's one of the things that comes through with his book. It's like at the end of the day, we're all just fans of rock and roll uh and music and um you know sometimes people's egos get uh, a little bit larger than what they should be uh in that world uh but uh but karabi's definitely not one of those he's really you know down to earth um but but that all being said though um i did feel the weight of the responsibility of documenting someone's life story um, for, you know, for perpetuity. Um, I mean, that, that in itself is, is a pretty big thing to, to do. You, you want to make sure that you represent, you know, their life accurately and honestly um, and truthfully, you know, for the generations, you know, and their family members to come when they read up about their, you know, great-great-grandfather Karabi on this book that's yeah. going to stick around for, for decades <laughs> to come. So, um, I wanted to make sure that it was a really truthful and honest account that, that really sounded like him. He had had a couple of attempts at uh, doing a book going back, you know, kind of 15 years ago or so that I was aware of. Um, so when we first started talking about this book project called Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, um, I asked him, you know, why those previous didn't go forward to completion and, and what happened there and and one of the, the reasons uh, that he explained to me was when he got some, um, some drafts back from one of the people he was working with, uh, on, when he read it back, he just felt like it, it wasn't him um, and it wasn't his words and it's not how he would kind of say things or describe things or talk about a situation or tell a story. Um, so I was very keen to make sure that I didn't fall into that same pitfall and that just emphasised in my mind even more so it was really important that it actually sounds like he's standing there right before you, you know, or sitting across from you at, at a table telling you these stories one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so in order to do that, you know, I suggested to him, well, look, you know, I think the best way to do it is really in an interview style um, for me to kind of extract those stories from you 
in your own words and then kind of massage it and shape it up into a into a book manuscript so that it all flows together and um you know and stuff like that so so that's actually how you know getting all the content out for this book was basically i just went through um you know and 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 wrote up a whole bunch of questions that i had Mm -hmm. about all the different aspects of his life all the different bands that he's played in and everything that i could think of that i was wondering about um and um and basically you know i would call him up um on the phone typically it would be a saturday morning my time here in melbourne and um and he would be at home in nashville in Tennessee and it would be a Friday night and we would just spend anywhere between like an hour or two, you know, up to kind of three, four, sometimes five hours on the phone. Wow. Um, and he would just be, you know, answering my questions and, and telling me the stories about this situation and that situation and what his views are on this and that and, and, and everything like that. And, um, and then that really gave me all of the content um, to, to work into the manuscript and, um, you know, and, and get all the stories down. And, you know, the book really goes from, you know, his birth, his first breath, his first scream, um, all the way through to how he sees himself dying. And it covers everything uh, in between. So if, if there's anything you want to know about Karabi, <laughs> I can pretty much guarantee <laughs> it's, it's covered in the book. It's very comprehensive. I love that. And, and, and written from, you know, from a fan's perspective, a friend's perspective, uh, you know, and everything that you've said, it just sounds so enticing uh, and to to anyone to want to read a fascinating story because, it, you know, we live in a day and age where we have many uh, options for autobiographies, but as you said, a lot of them are written from not necessarily the perspective genuinely of the artist in question. And it sounds like you've taken... Uh, a passionate and meticulous amount of time to to capture the essence of Karabi, the way he'd want to be portrayed from his mouth. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And, um, you know, so as I would kind of pull the manuscript together, um, I would send it over to him and he would review it and he'd go through and, and mark up, you know, whatever changes he wanted to make to it. And, you know, with me being an Aussie and him being an American, there's not only the differences between, you know, British English and American English spelling, yeah. um, but, um, but also even things like where he would place a swear word in a <laughs> sentence, yeah. you know, sometimes varies from where I or we as Aussies would typically, you know, uh, put that swear word in, in, in the sentence. So, you know, just little things like that. Um, you know, we went through it all with a fine tooth comb and we kind of tossed it backwards and forwards to each other a good, you know, eight to 10 times until we both kind of signed off on it and said, you know what, that's as good as we can make it. We're really happy with this now. That's awesome. um, so, you know, I, I've got a talent manager and she was saying to me along the way, she's like, Paul, you're spending so much time on this book. It's kind of crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And look, you know, in a commercial world, you know, I, I guess I shouldn't be spending so much time on it. But at the end of the day, this is a passion project. And I really want to make sure that this is, you know, the best work that I've ever done. Um, and I want it to really do him justice. 
Um, and, um, and I think, you know, that shows, um, and I think, you know, the fact that people are responding so favorably to it now, uh, makes all that time that I put into it worthwhile. Yeah. And was there in writing the book, you talk about, you know, uh, as you've just mentioned, the, the language barriers, you know, British English, American language, and, and of course, swear words. Um, was there any other major challenges presented to you in writing this book as well? Look, this is, um, this is the 10th book that I've, uh, that I've released. So mm. I've got a little bit of experience uh, under my belt now, you know, from kind of self-publishing my own um, history books on, on Motley Crue, um, through to, uh, you know, a, a book with a, a major publisher um, yeah. called Sex Tips from Rockstars that was re- republished in uh, multiple foreign language editions. Wow, uh, that's awesome. And even during the, the COVID lockdowns, you know, Melbourne was the most lockdown city in the world and, you know, yeah. all the concerts were cancelled and stuff like that. So I, I had the idea of, you know, um, turning some of the, the history content on Motley Crue into a crossword puzzle book to give fans something to do and keep them occupied. And, um, you know, so I've, I've created a, a crossword puzzle book as well. So I've got a quite a, a varied range of experiences now by the time I got to this one. Mm. Um, so there wasn't, you know, I, I guess the biggest challenge for me was really making sure that, you know, it, it, it did the project justice and yep. it was kind of good enough quality. Um, and that's where, you know, I just spent a lot of time massaging it and, and, and creating it. Um, but no, I guess, you know, I had the kind of process mapped out um, and enough about his career to, um, you know, to ask all the kind of detailed questions. Um, so it was really just, yeah, just, you know, and I mean, he's such a, a raconteur. He's such a great storyteller. He doesn't yeah. need much prompting um, to be able to tell a great story. So it was really just me giving him the triggers of, you know, let's talk about this topic now, um, mm. what you recall about this or that. And then, you know, he'd be off, um, you know, telling a great story. I guess if anything, one of the challenges was that we had so much content that we needed to whittle it down and narrow it down. So deciding you know, what bits we left out of the book was, you know, probably uh, one of the hardest things, you know, and and, sure. and we, we culled a lot of stuff um, before we got to the point where we both said, yeah, we're good with this now. Um, and in terms of, you know, the publishing deal, I mean, often what authors do is they come up with the idea for a book and they put together a synopsis and then a, a proposal and then either via an agent or, you know, directly, they, they'll then shop that around to different publishers and, and try and get a deal. So it's yeah. it's similar, you know, if people are familiar with, you know, being in a band and trying to get a deal with a record label, it's it's kind of a similar thing, right? Where yeah. you might have some demos, so you might have a sample chapter or two um, that you include with that to, to give the, the publisher an idea. Um, so... That's kind of typically how it's done, but we decided um, when we were kind of planning out, you know, our strategy and how we were going to go about doing this book, um, we decided that we would actually write the book first um, and then shop it around. And that way, um, you know, the publisher wouldn't 
force a timeline on us mm-hmm. that we needed to work to, which might not work with me and it might not work with him with his different gigs that he's got going on and, and things like that. And, I mean, it, it kind of helped that we were in the middle of COVID as well when we were working yeah. on the book. Um, but that said, though, a lot, of, uh, a lot of people, their creativity got zapped during COVID as well. Even though they might have had more time on their hands, they just weren't in the right headspace to do things. Yeah. Everyone was different there. So we decided that we would uh, put the, the book together first and get it finished and then shop it around um, and try and get a publishing deal. And then if we needed to change more content from there, well, so be it. So we had some conversations um, with a previous publisher that I'd worked with and they wanted to really reduce the content. I think from memory... We were up around the 165, 170,000 word mark. Yep. And um, and one publisher we were talking with was saying, look, you know, biographies and autobiographies, we typically publish at about 120,000 words. Um, so, you know, it's going to need a pretty drastic cull of the content. And it was like, oh, man, we've already gone through and culled out all the bits that we think we can and, you know, kind of trimmed the fat yep. and, you know, so that concerned us to, to trim that much more because we felt that we wouldn't be telling the whole truth and, and nothing but the truth. You know, we want the whole story in there. Mm. Um, so we kind of sat on that for a little while. But then um, um, I was doing some more research and um, I came across a publisher, which is the publisher we ended up signing a deal with, which is Rare Bird in, uh, in Los Angeles. And the thing that attracted me to Rare Bird was they're actually doing vinyl audio books. Um, oh, wow, that's awesome. As a, yeah, as a product. And, and I just thought that is really cool and I'd love to have this title, yeah. um, you know, offered as that kind of product as well. So, mm. yeah, so we got in touch with, uh, with those guys and, um, yeah, the, the head honcho at Rare Bird read the manuscript um, or read the proposal initially and came back and said, hey, can you send me the manuscript since it's finished? I'd love to have a read of it. So I shot that over and um, he read that and came back and was like, wow, this book is awesome. Like, love it. We would love to, you know, make an offer to you guys um, to, to publish the book. Um, so that was awesome. And look, the team at Rebird have been, have been brilliant to work with, um, you know, really good guys. They love their rock and roll. Um and one of the things uh, that they do are these vinyl audio books. So they've got a, uh, they've got a recording studio uh, that they own. So Karabi actually flew out from Nashville and spent 10 days in, in their studio in LA actually reading the book and narrating the story for the audio book version, oh, which, um, which if it's not already out on, um, yeah. on Audible, it, you know, and all the other audio book platforms, it, it will be yeah. very soon. Um, so then what they did was they took um, what they thought were the best couple of stories from the audio book um, and then we've put that onto uh, side A and side B of a vinyl record. Um, and K- while Karabi was in the studio, he actually recorded some, um, some music, some just kind of acoustic um, ambient music, some songs you'll recognise um and uh and one song is a brand new song that um wrote and recorded especially for this project and the intro audio book on the vinyl 
um, is this new music and the outro and then it plays underneath in there just to give a bit more atmosphere as you're listening to him narrate the story. And, um, you know, when I got those files through, it was pretty awesome listening to it. It was like, wow, this is great. Yeah. And then when I actually received a copy of the vinyl and put it on my turntable and sat down and, and listened to it, it was just a fantastic listening experience. And, um, and the packaging, it's got a gatefold sleeve to it. And when you open up the gatefold, there's a picture of his old neighbourhood in Philadelphia in there. And the, the side A is a story called The Shoemaker, uh, which is about uh, an encounter with a serial killer that he had. Oh, and as wow. he's talking about this, um, you can look at um, look at the picture in the gatefold and, you know, submerse yourself into that scene as he's talking about it all. And it, it puts you right there at that place in time. And it's just uh, it's just beautifully done. I'm really happy with the way that that came out. Oh, that's, so, that's really exciting and a very innovative way to, uh, you know, release an autobiography as well. With, uh, you know, a lot of people favour the audio books these days. So I, I think this is incredibly exciting. Yeah, well, music fans, you know, especially rock and roll fans, you know, are, are collectors, you know, of their favourite bands. So, you know, to have not only the book but, you know, an audio book and a Kindle version, um, mm. but to have this vinyl audio book in a gatefold, um, in three different versions, there's the standard black, there's a limited edition gold vinyl, which I think was limited to like 300 copies, and there's a black and gold splatter version as well. Um, it's just really cool for the fans, you know, yeah. they're, they're really digging that. That's so cool, man. And uh, like I'm I'm all kinds of – I cannot wait to read the, the uh, story <laughs> of the serial killer. I think that's really cool. Was there – Amongst the many stories, was there a particular story for you personally that stood out that uh, you like to reminisce on from time to time? Look, I think that's the one about his serial killer encounter that um, kind of stood out the most to me. Obviously, I knew a lot about his musical history, mm. uh, you know, from The Scream. And, um, I mean, I even knew about Angora prior to The Scream. That's awesome. Um, yeah. We go into his first bands. You know, he was in a band called Fragile. You know, and there was, um, you know, about three or four different versions of Fragile's. They switched <laughs> members and he tried to get things happening. And it's it's quite fascinating to see what it actually takes to kind of make it, you know. It's like by mm. the time he had, you know, the Screams debut album released, you know, people think, oh, who is this new, new guy? It's like, well, he'd already been playing, you know, in so many bands over years and, you know, paying his dues and earning his stripes. Um, you know, it's what it takes to, to make it in that industry. Um, but I think in terms of kind of new stories and that, his family history and upbringing, I mean, um, the song Uncle Jack that um, a lot of music I love fans, that song. Yeah, so that's autobiographical. So mm. that's actually about his Uncle Jack um, who, you know, abused his, uh, his brothers and sisters and stuff. Um, you know, so... People, you know, kind of know a little bit about that story, but, you know, the book goes into the full story and circumstances around all of that and, and the fallout right. from it all, um, not only on Karabi and, um, you know, but his family as well and how it uh, just tore his family apart. So, you know, that's probably one of the darker moments in the book um, that readers will uh, will work through. But I guess the, the serial killer story is the, is the new surprise as such that nobody had ever heard about because he hadn't mm. talked about it um, before as well. And I think, you know, fans of true crime um, 
you know, books will really enjoy that aspect of this autobiography as well. And that's one of the things, I mean, you know, John Karabi is not a, um, a household word, you know, or name in the same regard as, you know, Stephen Tyler or Robert Plant or, or someone of that ilk. Um, so sometimes people are like, who, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah. you know, he sang for Motley Crue more recently with the Dead Daisies and he was in Rat for a decade or so, you know. Mm. Think, oh, okay. Um, but one of the, the great things that I love about this book is you don't have to be, you know, a fan of any of those bands to actually, you know, pick this up and read it and, uh, and get enjoyment from it. I mean, it's just a, a fascinating um, rock and roll tale um but even you know i've had a couple of people reach out to me that aren't even the biggest fans of rock and roll and they're just like that guy's just had a fascinating life like yeah it's kind of crazy like what you know when motley released the dirt that i had the uh the good fortune to, to contribute to and, and work on as that was getting put together um you know now over a million people have read the dirt you know it's a and, brilliant read you know and you know there's been so many more that have now and stuff like mm. that so people know about kind of the rough upbringing you know childhoods of Nikki six um and he struggles with his mom and and all of that and you know yeah. Vince had a pretty rough upbringing stuff like that as well mm. well you know I've, I've said in a couple of interviews that i think you know karabi's upbringing you know rivals those in terms of you know all the things that he had to um endure and work through and and persevere through you know um, so I think, you know, it's things like that, that I think people are really responding to and just going like, holy shit, like this guy's yeah. life has just been quite incredible. And the main theme of the book is perseverance. Yeah. And that really comes through, you know, from an early age, you know, experiencing these tough things in his upbringing. Um, and then, you know, all these kind of misstarts and, and false starts with his different bands as he tried to climb the rock and roll mountain and, and make it quote unquote yeah. uh, in the industry. And then, you know, and then when he finally makes it and joins one of the biggest bands on the planet in Motley Crue at the time, um, you know, early in 1992, you know, what that was like, it's all about his experiences and what he was thinking and feeling as he was going through that whirlwind yeah. roller coaster and then you know coming down the other side of the mountain as well you know i say in there that gravity can be a bitch right it's, uh, yeah. it's it's pretty brutal coming down the other side of the mountain so people will get to read what what the fallout from all that was like as well and and how he gets to uh the point where he's at now where he's um where he's kind of you know content with the way that his life is because he, he realizes that um life is as it should be yeah, that's fascinating because, I mean, for such a long time, you know, fans of Karabi and, and that period of the crew, you know, we only know sort of one small aspect of the story, you know, and the roller coaster that, that was Motley Crue in 92. But to get a book where we get the whole story and a, and a tale, as you say, of perseverance, that really resonates um, and brings a lot of um, perspective to what we hear in his vocals today and, and his character of who he is um it just really comes all full circle so again you know it's it's fascinating to know you know to to live in a day and age where we uh have incredible rock and roll stories like this absolutely and i mean the whole you know 
the with Motley Crue fans, there's the whole Vince versus John debate that seems to never end and uh, yeah. and goes on. And, and you know, it's kind of like our politicians, you know, they yeah. are forcing, they're drawing a line in the sand and forcing you to be, mm. you know, team right wing or team left wing. Yeah. Um, and it seems like these kind of, you know, online debates and, and stuff like that is, you know, just trying to divide fans. But my view has always been, you know, I love every member that's ever been yeah. in Motley Crew and um, and admire what they brought to the band and appreciate that. And, you know, they had their, their chance and opportunity to contribute and they did and good luck to them and yeah, stuff. Absolutely. So I'm not one or the other. I'm actually both. Yeah, um, And I think, you know, what people will understand from this is um, the opportunity that, that Karabi had and how he took that opportunity, how he did his best and through all the different circumstances and forces of what was happening in the industry, what was happening in the band and the management and, and you know, all those factors, you know, turned into the situation where Vince ended up coming back to the band and, and for Vince to come back, they had to squeeze Karabi out. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I hope that it, it stops some people going, oh, that Karabi guy, you know, like who mm. don't really know his story and understand it. You know, I think it'd be great if people like that could just take a minute to actually read the story and understand things from his perspective. And I think they might have a a different outlook on, um, you know, on on him as a person Um, and, um, you know, and and hopefully can appreciate what he contributed to the band more and, uh, you know, and be somewhat thankful for it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree a hundred percent more. And um, I, I think, you know, this, this whole Vince versus John debate, uh, yeah, it's, it's really silly to be honest. And, and you should just appreciate both for, for what they've contributed to the music and that, that should be the end of that. But, um, if, if at all possible, I don't want to hold you up too much long because I know you're busy, but um, no worries. I would love to quickly pick your brain about your photography um yep. i've seen some recent images you uploaded of um, andy black with black Veil brides um and um yeah just your approach to photography in general um from your time in new york and shooting with the crew um what what drew you to photography and uh helped you evolve into where you are now as a photographer yeah thanks for that jesse um i guess Growing up, um, my grandfather had some um, some some old thirty five mil cameras around, oh, wow. um, but he didn't really let me kind of play with them as such mm. uh, very much because they were expensive pieces of, of equipment, mm. and and what that did is it actually made me more curious and um, you know kind of drew me to them even more. Um, but once I you know, started having more of my own money um, in my late teen years. I bought, um, I bought like a, uh, a small camera, um, you know, analog film camera, and I would take that to gigs. Um, I was living in Perth in Western Australia uh, at the time where I, where I come from. And, um, you know, so in the punk scene, I was seeing bands like the Hard-Ons, um, and stuff like that in the late 80s and camera along and, and take photos of the, of the bands and then, you know, get them developed. 
and um, and I just loved trying to capture those moments um, of those artists on stage. You know, particularly with the hard ons, they would they would mm. you know do jump. And we've just lost Paul there for a second, I the think. Photography, so. um, which is going back a long time ago now. And then when I finished school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I started doing a, a, um, a media studies uh, degree. Um, and that was with a major in photography. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to the orientation at the tertiary institution. And um, you spent a couple of days orientation. And they showed us like the dark room and the photo labs and you know, and all the cameras that we could use that were there mm. and the lenses and stuff like that. And I was like, awesome, this is going to be fun, you know. Um, so, and then I rolled up on the first day um, of the uh, of the first semester and I went to photography class and they started handing out assignments um, for that term. It's like, these are the assignments that you need to do. And a lot of it was written work and i was just like oh man i was just like totally bummed because it just felt like i was in school again i thought i'd finally yeah. finish school and exams and studying and stuff like that and it was now going to be a bit more fun so i quit um and uh, that was the end of my university days uh one day um so from there um i didn't really pick up a camera again um you know for a long time um and it wasn't until the advent of digital photography um, that I started getting back into it again because, you know, I mean, it's a pretty expensive hobby, you know, yeah. not only the, the equipment itself, but, you know, film processing um, isn't cheap. So with the digital cameras, it was like, oh, wow, this is actually a cheaper way of doing things. So I started getting into, you know, digital photography more. Um, and then naturally, you know, I was still seeing bands and stuff like that. So. I just started shooting uh, more concerts and then probably about, I don't know, maybe 13, 14 years ago, something like that. I started wanting to take it a little bit more seriously. Um, So I started trying to figure out, well, you know, how can I get my camera into concerts? Now, if if you're just going to a small club show, you know, you could just take it with you. No problem. But the bigger shows, you know, you're not allowed to bring cameras in, you know, they, they do the bag checks and, and you have to be authorised. Um, so then it was like, well, how does that all work? So I researched that and and found out, um, you know, that you need to get a photo pass issued to you um, by, you know, the publicist or the promoter mm. or the tour manager and, you know, and all that side of things. So I was like, oh, okay, so this is how it all works. So, yeah, so it was just basically a whole learning experience um, to, you know, be able to get the right access um, you know, and get into the photo pit at the very front of the stage um, at those larger shows that, that have pits. And then, yeah, basically working way up and, you know, to the point where, you know, you, you do some tours with bands and stuff like that. Um, so I guess I've always had eye um, mm-hmm. photography. People tell me that, you know, the way that I crop photos and and that is, um, you know, is, is, is really good. Like I haven't had a lot of technical um, I guess training and, and I haven't done courses and, and stuff like that. It's just kind of a bit of a natural gift that it seems that I've got. It's um, it's much like music, isn't it? It's like, it's, yeah, it's a natural skill. It's, I mean, people can do courses, but if you've got the eye, it, it, um, yeah, it's not really necessary to go through all that tertiary stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I tend to learn most by practical experience rather yeah. than theoretical, um, you know, training. So, mm. I mean, that said, though, I have, you know, over the years, I have bought books on photography and particularly photography, low light yep. photography. Um, but I typically find whenever I read a, a, a book like that, it's just reconfirming what I'm already doing and just telling mm. me some technical terms for, for what it is that I'm doing. So it's not really teaching me a, a lot more. So, um, yeah, so I've been, you know, kind of out and about shooting, yeah. now, you know, for a good kind of 13, 14 years. Um, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, shoot concerts, you know, everywhere from like Brooklyn to Bangalore to Paris to Las Vegas to Tokyo to Los Angeles, yeah. you That's know, amazing. all over the place. Um, yeah. Venues, you know, like ACDC Lane, all the way up to Times Square in New York and the MCG and and places like that. Um, so I've had a lot of different experiences um, shooting artists now. And, um, yeah, I still love it. I love the... Yeah. The thrill of it, you know, Absolutely. a couple of nights ago was Black Veil Brides. So, you know, shooting those guys right at the front of the stage, you've got all the, you know, the fans in the front row screaming their head off behind you, you know, and you can hear them through your earplugs and, yeah, you know, and you're right there, you know. I no love how you, close. yeah, sorry, I, um, sorry yeah. to interrupt there. I, I no, just want right. to say, like, there was a comment that you provided with a photo of Andy Black um, where you talked about the girls going weak at the knees, you know, experiencing that. And it, there's a magnetism in that photo that, um, you know, when you talk about having an eye for detail, you capture it so wonderfully. And it just, I don't know, the, the commentary you provide just kind of just goes hand in hand with the photo. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, I'm glad you liked that mm. uh, in particular. That was probably my favourite. Um, of the night um, but one of the things with music photographers um, so there's a great band called Starcrawler who are touring here yes uh, soon as well and on their last tour of Australia um, I, I stood side by side with my mate Stephen um, another music photographer and we were sh literally shoulder to shoulder shooting the same thing in front of us and when we compared our shots afterwards you know they were vastly different Mm. And part of that is because we both got different styles um, of the way we shoot and what we shoot and how much we zoom in or zoom out and, you know, all the different angles and, and things like that really help to create kind of, you know, a style. And one of the things I've heard people say in kind of, you know, coaching music photographers um, who are, you know, up and coming is, you know, create a signature style so that when someone looks at a photo, they can say, oh, that's a Paul Miles shot or that's a mm. Ross Helton shot, that's a Mark Weiss shot, you know, um, which, you know, is easier said than done. You know, it's, it's like a band, you know, what's your signature sound? How do you sound different to every other band that's out there? And sometimes, you know, something naturally will come through and then other times you need to kind of work on that a bit harder to refine it and, uh, and establish it. But what I've found over the years, I guess, is, um, my style um, and my preferred style are those close-ups of a singer kind of belting out a song. Now, there's a few reasons for that um, and the way that I um, arrived at that. Now, there's other photographers that like to get like the full stage, you know, in yeah. their shot. Um, 
but for me, those photos just kind of don't do it for me because it's like, well, that's what the crowd is seeing. They're seeing the full stage. What I like to do is to take those in the crowd up as close as possible to their idols, you know, and that artist as what I can get. Um, and even though that they might be in the, the front row or the front section of seats, um, they're still kind of seeing it from a distance. So because I've got the privilege of, of having that access in the photo pit in front of the front row, then I think that I should be bringing you shots that are even tighter and even cl- getting you even closer to the artist um, because you couldn't be in that in that spot. So the shots that I like most are the ones that really do focus on um, on the artist um, really up close. I tend to gravitate more towards the singer myself. I'm in a, uh, a oh, hard rock awesome. band called Skin Inc., um oh brilliant so, i'll check that out <laughs> yeah we've just we've just reformed um after a 20-year hiatus um Congrats. which is when i moved from perth to melbourne thank yeah. you so yeah. you know we're starting to release uh we've released a couple of singles earlier this year mm-hmm. um one called life's a bitch and another one called it saved my soul and uh we've, we've got more in the pipeline and there'll be an album coming as well next year right. um so being a singer, I can relate to singers more. I tried yeah. to play guitar when I was young and I just didn't have the patience for it. Yeah. And as much as I'd love to be able to play guitar, I don't. So I relate to singers more. So that's another reason why I tend to shoot the singers more. And the other reason I shoot the singers more is because as they're, as they're singing those words, there's a whole emotion and an energy thing that's coming out from their soul um at that time and it's coming out through their mouth and it's coming out through the veins in their neck and the expression and the lines on their face and the tight grip on the microphone and and all those those different finer details have an energy to it which i call the spirit of rock and roll um so that's really how i describe my signature style is those up close tight photos of the singers uh where you can feel the music and the sounds coming out of them. And I think, you know, that photo that I, I just put up of Andy is, is you know, is one of those in that style. He's not actually yeah. belting it out and screaming. No, it's just at a that, moment. At that point, it's, it's mm. a bit softer. Mm. Um, I do have a couple of others where he was, you know, pushing a bit harder vocally. Sure. But I think his, his facial features weren't as attractive. And, you know, he's a handsome guy and, and the chicks yeah. love him. Yeah, uh, a lot of guys love him too. So I thought, no, I'll go with one that's where he's a little bit more subdued in his vocal delivery at that point, so that his face is, you know, kind of as attractive as uh, as it's possible. A, it's more of a pensive moment. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I like it. Yeah, um, and I appreciate that 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 explanation. You know, has a myself. I've had the privilege of being photo- photographed by you know some some great photographers with an eye for detail. So it's it's wonderful your analogy of the art of capturing these moments from a singer's perspective. I think that's brilliant and um, one that I don't hear of very often. So um, kudos to you, man. Awesome, thank you. Well, yeah. next time you know if you get to play a show down here in Melbourne, let me know and I'll hundred uh, percent. I'll come and get some nice tight shots of you. Yeah. Uh, Belting out your songs. That'd be that'd be an honor. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll wrap this up in just a second. I just wanted to quickly um, ask you: you there's a brilliant photo um, that you shot 
uh, with your time with the crew um, of Nikki Six standing facing the camera with uh, Lemmy right in his ear. I think that's just such a powerful image. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd love to just get your your perspective on that photo. Yeah, sure. Um, so when I started writing the history of Motley, um, that was in the late 90s. And uh, at that point, Motley had only ever toured Australia once, which was in April of 1990 on the Dr. Feelgood tour. And they didn't actually bring that tour to Perth. And I wasn't in a position where I had the funds to be able to fly over east to catch those shows. So I'd actually never seen my favourite band perform live until the crew came back here in 2005 um, on the Carnival of Sins tour, or Red, White and Crew, as they called it here. For yeah. the um, so I teed up with management um, that... You know, they uh, they granted me an all access uh, pass, um, so I could you know just kind of come and go and um, and experience that that tour. Um, so yeah, Sydney was the first show, and um, and that was the first time I'd ever seen Motley play, and it was an experience that I'll never forget. Um, I think the third or fourth song in was Red Hot, and Nikki dedicated oh. that to me on stage. No way! Um, yeah, which you know caused all this um, moisture to to come out of my eyes. Oh yeah, uh, don't know what happened there, but um, <laughs> but that was quite an amazing experience. And then as the tour rolled on, we got into Adelaide, and um, I was out watching Motorhead um, perform because they were uh, the support band on that tour. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed Motorhead's set. And then when Motorhead finished, they walked backstage and then there was that break in between Motorhead and Motley Crue coming out. So I wanted backstage as well. And as I was walking up the, uh, the corridor of the Adelaide Entertainment Centre, um, I came across that scene basically where Lemmy had uh, come off stage, he jumped in the shower and... Um, had a quick shower to freshen up. Um, he had a, a towel on his head um, that he, you know, was kind of rubbing his, his hair because his hair was all wet from the shower. And then um, Nicky came out of his dressing room um, ready to go. He had his stage makeup on, his stage clothes, and he was uh, all set to take the walk to stage, um, you know, in kind of five, ten minutes um, you know, when, when it was time for them to, to do so. So there was this moment in the kind of dressing room corridor where Lemmy had come out of his room, Nicky had come out of his room. They met right there in the corridor um, and, um, and I had my camera with me. So I said, hey, you know, how about you guys uh, stand next to each other and I get a shot of you two? And they said, yeah, sure. So um, as I put the camera up in front of my face, Lemmy turned side on and just kind of gave a bit of a shout into Nikki's ear and Nikki kind of raised his eyebrows, you know, his eyes popped a bit <laughs> as he was looking at me. And, uh, and that's that very moment that I captured uh, in that photo. And um, I call it um, killed by breath um, <laughs> as a bit of a nod to the motorhead song killed by death. Uh, yeah. Because it looks like Lemmy's kind of, as he's shouting, he's breathing uh, onto Nikki. Um, and um, I was just really happy with the way it came out. And then once we got into Perth, which was the last show on that tour, mm. um, it, it was at the um, 
uh, Claremont Speedway or Claremont Showgrounds, but it was, you know, played on the infield of the Speedway. Um, so I was in the dressing rooms there with Nicky while he was getting ready and I was showing him the photos and, um, yeah, he saw that photo and he loved it. It was like, oh, man, that's awesome, you know. He said, can you send so these cool. to me, you know. So yep. I gave him the photos and that and he, he published it on his Oh, his website at that point was called nicky6.net uh, yeah. and he put the photo up there and it's just, I guess, become a little bit of an iconic photo to some degree. It has, yeah. Um, you know, fans really dig that photo. It's it's a very special photo and I think um, to get such a, a warm praise from Nicky6, who's a passionate photographer also, I think that must be like incredibly humbling for yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly one that uh, that I I love and uh, and cherish, and you know I use it on my portfolio, and it, it yeah. just captures a you know not only a moment of two icons, and obviously Lemmy's not here yeah. uh, anymore, unfortunately. Um, in fact, the the day that Lemmy died, um, I was on a plane flying from Melbourne to Los Angeles for the final Motley Crue shows. And when we got off the plane in LA, um, I turned, you know, my, my phone back off flight mode and then yeah. social media was just lit up with, um, you know, the news of Lemmy's passing. And I was actually staying just around the corner from the whiskey and the sunset oh, strip there yeah. at the London hotel. And, you know, to walk, um, to walk from the hotel to the strip, you walk past Lemmy street, you know, yeah. Um, so it was kind of surreal in a way to be there, you know, in Hollywood and at the rainbow and looking at, you know, all the, the flowers and, and yeah. the shrine that was developing as those few days went by after Lemmy's passing, um, to be there at that time. And, you know, I had the good fortune of not only spending some time with Lemmy on that tour with Motley down here in Australia. Um, which I documented in a book called Motley Crew Down Under um, that's available on Amazon. It's a tour diary of, of everything that went on in that tour. Um, so there's some great Lemmy stories in that one. But I also uh, had Lemmy uh, participate in the book Sex Tips from Rockstars. Oh, so sweet. he's in that book as well. So, um, yeah, so I've got, you know, a lot of great um, memories of yep. times with Lemmy, a lot of great memories of times with Nikki. So to have those two guys in that one photo is uh, is pretty awesome. Absolutely. And, uh, man, Paul, I, I could talk to you for ages about some of the stories, man, and times in New York and Tokyo and all that. Like, um, hopefully we can <laughs> do another one of these uh, in the near future, mate. But um, I don't want to hold you up too much longer, respectfully. No, um, all good. But uh, I'll put a link to your website in the description box so that people can check it out and um, grab a copy of some of the various books, including uh, Horseshoes and Hand Grenade and uh, and even the the Crew Crosswords. I think that's a brilliant uh, idea, man. That's so good. Yeah, something a bit different, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, lots of variety there. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that'd but, be great. Uh, Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Paul, thanks so much for sharing your happy days with me, man. There's some incredible insights and stories there. And it's such an honor and privilege to talk to you about uh, a great book and a great man in John Karabi as just as well as yourself, mate. You're an absolute stand-up human being, mate. Uh, thanks for that, Jesse. Too kind. But look, thanks yeah. for the opportunity to, uh, to tell some stories and, uh, 
you know, and share a bit. And I think what you're doing with the podcast, you know, focusing on the positive of happy days is uh, the great thing. You know, there's, there's enough, you know, downers in the world out there already. So, um, you know, power to the positive people and power to the music. Absolutely, man. Well said. <laughs> um, thanks so much again, Paul. And uh, we'll, I'll look forward to doing this again with you soon, mate. Right on. Be well. Thanks, thanks You too, Cheers. mate. That's it. Bye. And that concludes my awesome chat with Paul Miles. Thanks so much, Paul, for taking the time to share your happy days with me, mate. Absolute pleasure and a privilege to uh, do this. I can definitely feel a follow-up chat on the horizon, especially after I've read Horseshoes and Hand Grenades for sure. Uh, Folks, thanks so much for tuning in. You're amazing, all of you, seriously. Thank you. I really cannot express my gratitude enough, and I'm so grateful to people that listen to the show and have listened to previous episodes you're all amazing and uh, i really value the support if you haven't done so already be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to whether it's spotify itunes uh anchor whatever hit the subscribe button ring the notification bell so that you're kept up to date with uh new episodes and go that one step further and leave a little review if you could it just helps more people find this show because there's some incredible and powerful inspirational stories uh, from people from all walks of life as you have already discovered on this platform. And uh, I'm going to keep that train rolling, man. Honestly, it's, um, uh, you know, as Led Zeppelin sang it beautifully, man, train kept it rolling. And uh, yeah, I love these chats with these incredible humans. This chat with Paul is definitely one of my favorites. Um, we, the things we discussed, man, that story about Lemmy and Nikki Six was just amazing. And as well as, you know, just such a great chat about John Karabi. Uh, what a human being. Um, I'm still, you know, um, buzzing to this day every time I think about the, the time I finally got to meet John Karabi in person, but also witness one of my favorite albums uh in the crew self-titled played it in its entirety live um that will forever be etched in my memory um to witness that it was such a privilege to see that and uh i'm forever grateful to uh john karabi for inspiring me as a vocalist and as a creative mind and uh i'm also inspired after chatting with paul miles um what an amazing human being so that concludes another happy days episode thanks for tuning in um hit the subscribe button if you haven't done so already and uh again a huge thanks to paul for taking the time to share his happy days with me there is a link to his website in the description box and uh be sure to tune in next week for another happy days episode and uh hope some of you if not all of you can hang around this week for uh, friday's freaky friday episode and also uh, rad on saturday with my pal jake ready get down and dirty with some horror and uh, some pop culture should be fun other than that guys and gals have yourselves a happy week a positive week keep your chin up and uh know that the light always shines at the end of the tunnel and uh positive thoughts will take you places If not immediately, it will. I promise you. Have a happy week, friends. And uh, thanks for tuning in again. I've been Jesse. You've been amazing. Till then.